Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. Let's pray. God, we uh, come in this morning uh, hoping to uh, experience you connecting all the dots in our life with the things that are great, the things that we were, we thought, we thought maybe there was a hint of something that you were leading us to or guiding us to. Um, there's things that people have said to us. Lord, we hope that you connect all the dots for us this morning. Lord, we also come in here, as we said earlier, sometimes just stuck, sometimes just in that place to where we can't move forward. But we also come in here this morning with a heart full of praise and thankfulness that you have so much patience for us in the ways that we mess up, in the ways that we, we screw up our own lives, uh, for the times that we're not thankful for the things that you have done for us. Lord, we love you, and we ask that as we open up your word, we will hear you speak to us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are two major identity problems that occur inside of the church. And when I say church, I don't mean like lowercase church. I mean capital C church, the church in general. All the churches combined, all Christendom together. We oftentimes face these identity crisis of who are we, who are we going to be. And it typically lands us in one or two camps. We're all familiar with, and we refer to it you know, frequently as, you know those churches, right? We say things like, you know those other churches where you can, you show up there and if you're not wearing the right outfit, right? Like they look at you like, really? And so that's one of them. And kind of it's this mentality of we don't think anybody takes the gospel serious enough. So what we do is we take it and we put Christianity on steroids, on our steroids, these synthetic fake steroids, and we begin to put all these other rules together like this. You shouldn't go to the theater if you're a Christian. How many of you have ever heard that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't go to the movie theater if you're a Christian, right? Like, wow, that's the thing? Like, that's not the worst thing about me, I'll be honest. You know? Like, me going to the theater, that might be a productive use of my time, you know? Compared to where, you know, like, there's no, like, that's it? No dancing. Dancing's the problem? You should see me dance, it's bad, you know? So I don't think that's going to be the problem either. So what we do is we, we gather up these other things, this, this one form of this identity crisis. We gather up these things and we say, no one's taking this serious enough, and so we heighten it. We elevate hyper-religious. We put these things together and it becomes, okay, this is the way you look, this is the way you dress, this is the way you act, and then many of you have come in here and said that very thing like, ah, oh, wow, like I cannot believe, like I'm wearing a t-shirt and I'm, I, and Jesus, is Jesus okay with that? Because where I came from, Jesus doesn't like t-shirts, you know? Okay, well, whatever, it's, just, it's your call, you know? 
Make sure it's appropriate and whatever. It's good, you know? But there's another camp. And the other camp is this, and we see this all the time. Church typically falls into one of these two. The other one is, we water down God's word so much that we begin to supplement self-help in place of God's word. Are you feeling down? Are you? Are you feeling down? You know what? God wants you happy. Does he? Does he? Does God really like have this thing like, oh, I wish you were happy. Let me ask you, do you hope that for your kids? You just want them to walk around stupid, laughing like an idiot, and happy all the time, oblivious to the world around them. No compassion in their heart for the broken down, just dumb, laughing and happy all the time. That's what you hope for for your children? I hope not. I will do anything to make sure my kids are happy. Okay, well, I'm going to give it 15 years, and you're going to be very unhappy. Because if you spend all your life making your babies happy, they're going to spend the rest of theirs making you unhappy. It's not going to work. That's not realistic. I don't think God is on that side of like, oh, cheer up, big guy. Like, it's silly, isn't it? Oh, that, just cheer up. I mean, look, I make rainbows and clouds. Like, oh, gee, even he, really? <laughs> serious? Yeah, what's, what are you down for? No, I don't think that's it. I think sometimes God puts us in that place to where he's like, we need to deal with some stuff, and you're not going to like it. Hey, and men in the room, that's a little comforting, isn't it? It's a little comforting. It's a little comforting for me to know that God will confront me in all of my ego and masculinity. God will step into my life and be like, want to go? Whoa, what? You want to do the man dance? What? What are you saying? Want to go outside? We're going to work this thing up. Oh, this is respectable. This is respectable that God would challenge me. Because it keeps me in this place of like, look, he's in charge. He's in charge. I can understand humility. I can understand discipline. You see, but this other camp, not the hyper-religious, but this other camp, gets to this place where we water everything down to where it just turns into like, oh, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. It's no big deal. I recently listened to a guy say, you know what one of my favorite parables from the Bible is? I said, no. And he started telling me this parable that isn't in the Bible. <laughs> it's not. It's a story you would hear in church. But it's not a parable. It's not even a story in the Bible. It's not even a real thing. It's just a very good illustration of something else. But it's not a parable from the Bible. It's like the verse, you know, <laughs> cleanliness is next to godliness, which isn't a verse. Like, it's not real either. It's just one of these things like, oh, it sounds good. Slide it on in. I mean, it seems like it's all right. Let's just put it on in there. You see, what happens is this. We keep going to this place to where it's like, I will interpret God through my own lens instead of, and, and on my terms instead of on God's terms. It's kind of like this whole idea of when we take a verse and we pull it completely out of context. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then we take it and we apply it to things like, I got a big race this afternoon. I'm running in this 5K 
and the Lord's going to give me strength. That's super, except what that verse was talking about was being persecuted, whipped, and nearly killed for the gospel. Is that a part of your race? Is that a part of your tough mutter you're going, you're going to? Is that, do you believe in Jesus? I do. You know, is that it? No, it's not. So we take these things and we pull them out and we be like, it applies to my hard situation. Maybe we take, this is the thing that I, I, I went through a parenting class with Ernest and his wife at one point. And the thing that kept saying was this, when we raise kids, we do not set the standard and then try to take the standard and then bring it down to our kids so they meet it. We set the standard and we elevate our kids to meet the standard. In the same way, this is what we do to the message, to the message of the gospel. We take it and we're like, oh, it's so high and lofty. And I know they're talking about persecution, but I'm running a one-mile fun run later, and I think he's going to strengthen me for this fun run. Well, okay. But I think maybe there's more to it than just that. I think there's more to that. So what we do is we just supplement, and we just water this stuff down. And before too long, the church turns into this great, big, huge, self-help, cushy, it's okay, God wants you happy. It's okay. He forgives you. And there's no longer any commitment. There's no longer any discipline. There's no longer any sort of um, working through the tough details. The verse that says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What we do is we pick and choose. Ooh, we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? I'm uncomfortable with that version of Jesus. Or the one where he says, in this life, you will have trouble. Um, I'm going to erase that. I don't want trouble. And we just try to accept these certain things about God. See, the church always lands in between these two things. If we're going to generalize it even, even further, it would be this. Nobody takes the Bible serious enough or no one takes the Bible serious. And we're okay with that. It's okay. It's just not, it's not really something we need to get worked up about. Or we're on the other side. No one takes us serious enough, so we need more rules. So typically, the church lands in between those two things. So my question today is this. Which one are we? Now, the deal is this. What we'd like to be is like, we're neither. We're special. We're right in the middle. Doing it good, knocking it out of the park. That would be cool, wouldn't it? I mean, wouldn't it? But like, you know there's enough self-deception in you and in me. Like, that probably isn't going to be 100% true. Now, we're not going to ask other churches, hey, how, how are we doing? Uh, not very good at all. <laughs> we're not going to get that. You can't ask anybody else. The only people we can really truly ask is, number one, God. And second, I can only evaluate what's inside of here. What's inside this uh, two-foot square space that I'm standing in. This kind of identifies what we are as a church. And I mean for you. You draw a circle around you, and then you tell me. Which one is the church? You see, because ultimately, at the end of the day, we are the body of Christ. We are each and individually a part of the whole. So which are we? Are we a group that looks at the rules and says, no one's taking this serious. We need to, we need to tighten it down. We need to put more to it. We need to start telling them, you know what? You need to dress nicer. You need to live to this level. No more theaters. No more with more rules? Or are we on the other side to where we just water it down? I mean, I think if, on one level, I mean, we could look at this and we could say, our church is pretty relaxed. 
maybe we kind of lean towards the water it down part a little too much, a little, little irreverent, too much laughing and joking in church. Maybe, that, maybe that's us. Well, here's the other side. Once you get on that side, isn't it kind of easy to become the other just instantaneously? Because, I mean, look at us. We're so relaxed. Things are so good. Why can't more people and more churches be like us? Which are we? Ah, now I'm on the other side. Defining the rules for everybody else. You need to be more like us. If you're more like us, more people will come to your church. You would like it more. You would like Jesus more. Jesus would like you more. Wow. You see what I mean? Like, this is a delicate, delicate thing. Like, how do we define how we're doing? I think part of that comes back to where we are in Scripture today, Luke chapter 11. This identity crisis inside of religion has always been a situation, even in Jesus' day. Last week, we talked about the Pharisees, who were the hyper-religious. And the hyper-religious stood in this place of, like, saying, it's not enough, you're not listening, you're not doing enough, so raise the standard, elevate your game, you've got to do better, you've got to work harder. Remember, they had this whole stringent plan and all these uh, detailed ceremonies that you had to complete, and that meant you're righteous. But there was another group as well, and they were on the other side. So if you remember, the story went like this. One of these Pharisees, the hyper-religious, invites Jesus to a dinner, pulls him into the meal and says, hey, we'd like you to come in, sit down, have a meal. We'd like to just discuss some things. And I don't think it was, uh, I don't think it was deceitful. I don't think it was, they were, they were prying. I think they were curious as to who Jesus was. I don't think the Pharisees are ultimately bad people, all of them. But I think they were reaching for we want to understand how do we put you into our system. We don't understand, which if, you, if you've dealt with Jesus very long, he doesn't fit into your system very well. Have you noticed? Like he doesn't. Like he's got one. Can you show up? Hey, Jesus, I'd really like you to fit this mold. And he's just like, listen, number one, I don't feather my hair and stop looking at those senior pictures that are hanging up in churches everywhere of me. Like that's not really me. You know? It's not me. I've got a way that I do things. And if you want a picture of who Jesus is, check out the book of Revelation. That'll change your senior picture idea of who Jesus is. He's not like this in the book of Revelation. He's coming with a sword. He's on a white horse. Horse has got blood up to its like withers, racing through, hacking people in half. Oh, so that's Jesus? Oh yeah, you'll like him. He's <laughs> fire in his eyes. Like he looks, he looks ticked, I'll be honest. Like he, that's a good picture of who he is. So then these Pharisees are the hyper-religious. And so Jesus says to him, look, here's the problem with you guys. And he starts going through and he blasts him. He gives him the three woes of what the, what's wrong with them. First one was this. Woe to you Pharisees because you, you tithe good, but you hold back your love and justice. The second one was this. You want the most important seats in the house. You want to be recognized all the time for things that you do, you, for your righteousness. The third one. You are like unmarked graves. This idea that you just lead people you lead people astray. Like you're not helping them get to a place of purity. Like all your rules are still missing the point. Like I didn't need those. And you've, in, you've in, in, in implemented all these other rules. And, and we, don't, we don't need those. And so then, here's one of my favorite verses in there. One of the experts in the law, 1145, Luke 1145. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. 
So you've got the Pharisees, and then you've got these people who are experts in the law. By trade, they are lawyers. But they're lawyers, like our lawyers here, they studied the law. Their law was the law of Moses. It wasn't like separation of church and state. This is what it was. The law. The law of Moses. This is what their responsibility was. Their contribution to Judaism was to read through the Torah, study it word for word, clause by clause, line by line, then, then, then retrieve all the information from it, extrapolate this information to the rest of the world so that they would have an idea on how to get there. But there's a problem with this group. There's a problem. They kept it at the law. They didn't study the wisdom books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and they completely avoided the prophets. You see, this part of the identity crisis that we're talking about where we water things down is this. We want to control religion. The first one is we want to control people. The next one becomes we want to control God. When you step into a church and you're like, this is the standard, look like this, act like this, talk like this, live like this. That's about controlling you as a person. When you step into another one, it's about, I want to control God. He's the dangerous one here, not you. Because if God gets loose inside of a church, do you know what will happen? He'll change it and he'll change all the plans and all this stuff that we've been having meetings about and places that we're going. And we don't really want God to show up in here and go changing the direction of everything we're trying to get done. Because that's what happens when God shows up. So one is about controlling people. One is about controlling God. And the Sadducees restricted their study to the Torah, the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They just studied these. Do you know why that's convenient? Because inside of those five books, it is very, very hard to put together a picture of a living God. Behavior modification. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is about that. We can block God out and he can't get in with his wild, crazy rants. You see, what the prophets would do is they would show up and they would say, here's what the Lord says. And if a prophet come walking into town, if you read through the Old Testament, here's what you'll hear. Do you come in peace? The prophet comes walking into town. Do, do, wait, do you come in peace? Why? Because you don't know what a prophet's going to say. And if he walks in and he says, I got a word for you. Oh, no. Oh, here comes the Lord. La, 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 la. I don't want to hear it. And so they wanted to block God out. They wanted to control God. Jesus, when you say these mean things to the Pharisees, it seems like um, you're implying that we have done something wrong too. And Jesus, as quick as he can, spins on him and be like, you know what? Let me tell you something about you. I'm going to square you off right now. Check this out. Verse 46, Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you. I like this version of Jesus. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Now when you read that, originally, I mean, from just at, at first glance, it sounds like it's about burdening people down with all these rules and not willing to help them do it almost like the Pharisees. But in fact, it's just the opposite. See, here's the part of the corruption that took place. These Sadducees, experts in the law, part of what they did was take care of the temple services. So check this out. 
Everybody had to go to Jerusalem to make sacrifices. It was just the law. You just do it. And the sacrifice that you bring, your lamb that you had to bring, had to be spotless. You can't pick out the crappy one and take it. You hear me? Like you don't look at your herd and be like, which one can we give God? How about this crappy one over here? It's probably going to die anyway. No, 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 no. You take the good one. This was the law. You bring a blemish-free, a spotless lamb. This is what you bring to Jerusalem, and this is what you sacrifice. So here's what would happen. People would come from all over the place to Jerusalem, and they would bring their sacrifice. This lamb that a very, very poverty-stricken people had raised and taken care of, this is going to be the one that we offer to God this next year. This is the one right here. And so they would get it, and they would have it on a leash. Can you see all these people bringing all these pure, spotless little lambs into Jerusalem, and they're going to make a sacrifice. And when they got there, here's what they were told. Well, let me inspect your sacrifice. And so these men that Jesus is talking to here would inspect the sacrifice and then turn and say, this won't work. What do you mean this won't work? This won't work. This is not a worthy sacrifice. But for a small price, you can have one of the ones we have over here. They are certified, blemish-free, and altar-ready. And overpriced. So they are burdening a group of people who are striving for righteousness, following the law, and they're standing between God and them, standing in the way of their righteousness. You mean to tell me Jesus isn't going to have a heyday with them? Oh, yeah. He's going to get loose on them. Why? Because they're standing in the way of their righteousness. They're extorting their people. There's proof of this, too. Do you remember this moment when Jesus tore into the temple? Went to, made a whip out of some cords, tipped over some tables, snapping this thing. You've turned it into a den of thieves, he says. Here he is. You burden the people with this. And you don't even lift a finger to help them. You don't even open up the opportunity to help get them to righteousness. Now, see, here's what's crazy. We take a passage like this, and we read it, and we say, well, I'm not in charge of the temple, and I'm not selling overpriced sheep. It's not a thing I'm doing this afternoon or probably any time in my life. So this verse really doesn't apply to me. So move on to the next one. Here's the problem. Every one of us have a circle of influence. Are you standing in the way of somebody's righteousness in your life? How you live, what you do, what you say, what you do on the weekends, is it standing in the way of somebody else's righteousness? Bosses, supervisors, managers, you have people who are underneath you. Your temptation would be this, to live above them. The temptation is just too, it's just too easy. Like, you can live above them. You can complicate those below you. And this is just on, a, just on a worldly level. Same with people who are laborers, people who just go to work every day, come home exhausted. We have a thing that we do, and ours is this. Our temptation is 
to blast the people who don't go work their 40 hours, right? It's too easy. To where we see somebody who's not doing anything, we want to burn them down. Well, they didn't sweat like I sweat today. And we go after them. What's wrong with the world? People just don't want to work. Instead of taking the fact that we have the ability, the mindset, the work ethic, the strength, the, the physical body to get up and to go to work every day and then thank God for what we can do. We, we turn around and we point it back to other people and be like, well, I'm better than them. Now that's just on a, on a, just a superficial level. Let's take it to a spiritual level. How many people inside of your home are waiting on you to take them to the next level spiritually? How many people inside of your home are waiting on you personally to lead them to the next place? Men, this one lands hard on us. Lands very, very hard on us. Because we were designed to be the spiritual leader of our homes. And when we drop the ball, we stand in the way of somebody else's righteousness. Single moms, you got a tough load on your hands. Some of you who are married and your husband has absolutely no interest in being a spiritual leader. He's not interested. He's not even taking steps to move to that. You got a, that's a hard deal. Let me tell you this. You're not alone. God has not forgotten you. He's with you and the burden is heavy. But he will strengthen you for every single thing that you need. You're not alone. He didn't forget you. You have to step into that role and you have to be the spiritual leader in the absence of a spiritual leader. Children and teens, you have a circle of influence too. You have people who know you. People who know that you have said, I am a Christian. People who know you go to church. People who know that just by, way, by the way you act, you are different. When we do not do a good job of living up to that, when people know that this is who we are, we stand in the way of their righteousness. You see, the world is looking at us as a puzzle, trying to put together what about them is different. And if you're handing out puzzle pieces that don't match and they go to something else, it doesn't work. It's a distraction. It stands in the way of somebody else's righteousness. So yes, while we do not sell over, overpriced livestock, we still do stand in the way of somebody's righteousness. So for us, that's the application. How am I standing in the way of somebody else's righteousness? I need to examine my own life. Maybe I am burdening those around me with my stuff. Second thing that Jesus throws out to him is this. This one's super random. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets. Now that one does seem like we could skip it and it wouldn't have much to do with us. But if we read on, it begins to become a little more clear. You build tombs for the prophets and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets and you built the tombs. How many of you have ever, don't raise your hand when I ask this question, don't do it. How many of you have ever gone to a funeral out of obligation? I'll take it by your silence that that's a yes. I have too. Did you go because you cared or did you go because you loved his or her mother? 
his dad or her dad was a really good guy. That's why I went. And you go and you sit down in the chair and you listen to a well-intentioned minister say some things about a person who you knew, but they are not describing the person who you knew. Like, am I at the right place? You're looking at the flyer like... If I had to, based on the description, that's not who we, I didn't know them like you knew them. We get there out of obligation. And here's why, just cut to the quick. It's easier to honor the dead than it is to live with them sometimes. True? Sometimes it's easier to go to the funeral and send flowers hug their mom, hug their dad than it is to ever have to tolerate and be around the person. I know that's heavy. I know it is. But it's real though, isn't it? Like there's those people you just like, I don't want to go to this. I should probably go. I don't want to go to this. I should probably go for the mom, for the dad. It's just easier to honor the dead sometimes than it is to live with the living because you know what's wrong with living people? That. I mean, people are people, right? They're complicated and twisted, and they get screwed up, and sometimes it's just, they're just hard to live with. If you ever have to live with somebody, which most of you do, right? I mean, like a kids or a spouse or a relative. People are difficult. Sometimes it's just easier this way. What Jesus says is this. You honor the fact that you build these big tombs, these big luxurious tombs for these prophets, and you want people to look in on your life like, you know what, they really, truly cared. They were really, really listening to what the prophets said. But the truth is, you do it for your own conscience. Ah, guilty. Guilty. I'm guilty of that. What Jesus is saying is, if only your life matched your sorrows. If we're going to use the parable of the funeral, then let's use it again. If only G if Jesus were to walk in and see me at a funeral and him say, oh, I noticed all the nice words you said to the family as you walked through and you hugged everybody. I'm sorry for your loss. 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 And Jesus were to look at me and say like, did you... Did you know him? Did you see him around? Yeah, I knew him. I saw him around. Did you invite him in? Wait, what? What do you mean? Did you invite him in? Did you talk to him? Did you listen to him? Offer him your ear? See if you could do anything for him? We kind of ran in different circles, Jesus, you know? Like, they kind of did this thing, and I was over here. Yeah, I know, but you saw him, though, right? You saw him around, right? Saw him around. Did you do much? Did you do much for him? No. Oh. Because based on how you were acting back at the funeral, I would have thought that you knew them well. Like you really truly cared based on the way you were acting. Is that is that not that's not that's not real? It's not. I see the Sadducees were in the same place. Their fathers were the ones who killed the prophets prophet showed up into town and dropped the word of God like a bomb right in the middle of everyone. This is what the Lord says about this place. You people need to do this thing. This is what God says. 
don't kill the messenger. And they're like, too bad, we're killing the messenger. And they killed the prophets. But these men, in a, in a hope to maybe have people look at them like they're righteous, built these big, beautiful tombs for the prophets. You want to know what's twisted about this? They didn't even honor the prophets inside of Scripture. They didn't even think it was real. They're doing it for their own sake. They're doing it for their own sake. Pacify their own conscience. There is a place for a funeral. Consoling the family, closure for the family, going there to honor a life well lived. But there's also a time when, you know what? Maybe staying home is just a better thing for you. Because it's honest. It's honest. And maybe you need to go to comfort people, but you know what? Maybe, maybe you need to be honest. I didn't do a good job with them. I could have. I didn't do a good job with them. See, this is where they landed in this place of like, the, water, the, the, the scripture's been watered down. We don't really care what the prophets think, but we definitely want the encouragement. We definitely want to be noticed for what we've been doing. Check this out. It is easier to donate money to a cause than it is to donate your time. Correct? It's easier to look at a situation and be like, can I send a check or do I have to go and take a broom? Because I'd rather not take a broom and go. I got stuff I want to be doing. It's easier to offer up great ideas for somebody else to do than it is to actually do the idea that you came up with. Right? If you've ever been in a position where somebody shows up and gives you a great idea, hey, you know what we should do more of? What? We should do this and this and this. Oh, okay. Would you like to be in charge of it? Oh, no, no. You should be in charge of it. I just wanted to be the good idea guy. You know? Oh, okay. I got an idea. Take your ideas and fill in the blank. It's easier to implement scriptures about grace, mercy, and forgiveness than it is to actually obey them. It's easy to stand on one side and be like, you know what, I hurt their feelings. I should apologize. I'm sorry. You know what, I, I apologize. I'm sorry. I, I should have done a better job. But like, if it's me and I'm offended, somebody comes, hey, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have said that. You're right, you shouldn't have said that, you know? And we hold it, we hold it back. We really just like to decide who's going to get what, what I'm going to listen to, what I'm not going to listen to. See, the prophets were the voice of the Lord. And when the voice of the Lord came to town, these were a group of people who began to cut, cut the message of God away from the people. We have this responsibility to stand in the place of the prophets and say, here's what the Lord is telling me for my family. Here's what the Lord is telling me for my marriage. Here's what the Lord is telling me for my friends. Here's what the Lord is telling me for the church. Here's what the Lord is telling me for our community. And all of us have this role. But rather what we do is we would just like to get our name on the back of a chair at the bolus. That's what we care about. Do I care about theater? No, but I want my name on a little golden placard on the back of a chair. I want the stained glass windows of the church emblazoned with my name. And if you've been in churches, then you know that this is a real thing. These little plaques all over the place. This stained glass window was dedicated by so-and-so. Are we living for Christ in our hearts, in our lives, and out front for other people just for their sake? Or is this a real thing that's going on inside of us? The third woe comes down. 
the line, and Jesus says this, you took away the key to knowledge. You took away the key to knowledge. Woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who were entering. You've taken away the key to knowledge. Along with not believing in the prophets, here's what else they didn't believe in. Resurrection. Spoiler alert. I don't know if you know what happens at the end of the book of Luke, but Jesus kind of has a thing about resurrection and he's going to take this pretty personal. The fact that the Sadducees are on the side of like, here's the thing, Jesus, we just don't believe in resurrection. Jesus, can you see him like getting ticked off a little bit? Like, I'm about to show you resurrection. You're going to put me under, and then I'm going to show back up on the front step in about three and a half days. You're going to see me again. How, who is it? It's Jesus. Oh, no. This is not a good thing. He's going to show back up. And so they don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in afterlife. They don't believe in what the prophets said. They don't believe that God is actually trying to speak. They just believe about, you know what? Here's the thing. What's in it for me? Is it comfortable and does it fit good? Do people notice it and compliment me? Because this is what matters most. So what is this key to knowledge? This key to knowledge is... The hope of the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection is this. That at some point in my life, I won't have to deal with the garbage of this world. I'm not suggesting this is just a broken and bad place all the time. But you got to admit, like cancer sucks. You got to admit, divorce hurts. You got to admit, raising kids is hard. Got to admit, sometimes it gets lonely. I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying someday there will be no bad. And that's the hope of the resurrection. But I need Jesus to come back from the grave at the end of the story because I need to know that there's something else on the other side. Because I'm telling you right now, if your boss said, I don't know that we're going to get paychecks this next Friday. I know it's Monday and all, but I don't know if we're going to get paychecks. Who's going on Tuesday? Probably few of us. Listen, if going to the gym for a solid year did not prove any results whatsoever in your life, might I offer you a suggestion? Stop going. If it's not going to do anything, stop going. Now, if you're just going there and eating breakfast in the parking lot and leaving, that's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. But if you're going and you're working out and there's no results, why are you doing it? Because what you believe about the end of your life will change how you live your life now. And if you don't believe that there's an afterlife like these Sadducees, if you don't believe that, then what you do in this life doesn't matter, which means I wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing now, and neither would you. We would go find something fun to do, right? We're not going to be here. And I promise you this, I'm not going to be a very nice person if, I, if there's nothing on the other side of this. If there's nothing on the other side of this, if there's no hope in the resurrection, I'm, this is dumb that we're even here. We should be doing something fun and reckless. But that's not what we believe. We believe there's got to be more to this. This can't be all. 
This can't be all of what life is. Surely there's more to it. And you're right, there is. There's the hope of resurrection. Someday, as I've said before, I need you to be there. Because there's a super good version of me, probably tall too, that I want you to see. And I need you to be there because that's true. Like I promise, like there's a great version of me. You wait and just get up like, like I've been in a rock polisher for like a month. You wait. Like it will be good. Like I can't wait for the other side of that. That's the hope of the resurrection. That like things are going to be bad. Things are going to be hard. But there is hope in the resurrection. The key to the knowledge that they have cut off is this. Then what are you living for? You Sadducees, you've taken away the key of knowledge and then you lost it. Like you hid it from the people and then lost it yourself. You're talking about wanting to go do something and be something. Why are you even going to church if you don't believe there's something on the other side? I need to read you a few passages of Scripture. Psalm 27. Verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, and this I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of my days, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle, and He will set me high upon a rock. Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men will stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on the wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and they will not faint. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. For I am convicted that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The hope of the resurrection brings us to a place to where we can look at the circumstances in our life now and say, it's okay. It's not awesome, but it's okay. And we'll survive. And it's going to be good. And we're going to trust God. And we're going to get through it. It's going to be okay. And if it's not okay right now, it will someday be okay. It will someday be okay. And this is the way we live. So my question is this. Which church are we? Which church do we want to be? The only thing that determines that is how we are personally. How are you personally? Which one are you? Rules? Regulation? Glory? Your own revelry? Your own awards? Which is it? 
What church will we be? What's the impact that we're leaving on the outside world? That's based on us. Last verse. Luke chapter 11, last two verses. Luke chapter 11, 53, 54. And then we will get out of here. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something that he might say. Gospel writer Luke now takes our story and he turns it from this Jesus who was caring and having these conversations and this engagement to now he's made enemies and we are on our way to Jerusalem. In very, very, very short time, you'll find himself on the cross. You'll find himself tortured find a false trial, accused of things he didn't do, accused of things that he did do. And we'll find him crucified. This is the turning point right here to where everything begins to pivot from this point. Jesus had stepped into a place. He he had taken a stick to a hornet's nest and now he has made enemies. And here's what's beautiful about it. He did it for us. He did it for you knowing good and well that there is a thing that he has to defend and that is your, your place, your uh, access to God, your forgiveness, your hope in the resurrection. This is what we have. And he does this for us. So it's wonderful. So here in a couple weeks, we'll get it done. We'll get it done. We'll find some more. Let me pray.